0: I believe that life is in the moment. If we are chasing big experiences and fancy cars and everything else, all these little moments of right now you and I, or me taking a walk this morning and watching a crazy bird you know, in the sky, that's where real life takes place. It is in the ordinary moments that we live an extraordinary life.
1: The first novel I ever read was Hans Brinker or The Silver Skates. I was like four or five years old and it wasn't my choice. My friends hung outside my window telling me to come out and play. My mom would make me read these pages before I could go out and play. But as it turns out, it started my love for reading. Over the next few years, I tore through every Hardy Boys, Reader's Digest Cadence books, Tom Stetson and the Giant Jungle Ants. As a teenager during our summer break, I would often break away from my friends and just closet myself in my room and tear through the Narnia Chronicles or, or the Lord of the Rings. I love words, I love reading, watching, and listening to other people's words. And As you might guess, I love writing and speaking my own. One of my favorite courses in university was an English course where we studied utopian and dystopian fiction. It's where social and political structures are exaggerated. Utopias portray a world of perfection, perfectly match your values. Plato's Republic and Shangri La were two I studied. Why dystopian novels like 1984 and A Brave New World offered the opposite. But I questioned whether one would ever want to live in either state. And to prove my point, for my final exam, I wrote a story called The Mushroom Farm. It was set after a nuclear attack had led our planet to waste, and only a few hundred people survived in a modern day Noah's Ark. Well, they lacked for nothing. There was no need for purpose or pursuit, as all were provided. One day one of the survivors, a farmer, looked outside the window and saw a mushroom growing in defiance of an atmosphere choked in radiation and imprisoned by a nuclear winter. This mushroom, surviving outside of their pod, created so much excitement, but to venture out meant there was no return, it was simply intentional suicide. For a week that farmer sat at the window looking at this single mushroom, and behind him at the trappings of his surrounding, and he chose to step outside to be grateful to spend the remaining minutes of his life outdoors and to touch and taste this musher, this miracle of Mother Nature, who had survived despite human nature. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters, with Tony
0: Chapman, presented by RBC. You
1: know, life and circumstance not only how you experience it, also how you choose to see it and be grateful for it. And after hearing my guest's story today, you might ask, what is he grateful for? He grew up in the hands of an abusive father. And then the love of his life at age 31 was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. And she spent 11 years battling the disease before she passed away. But despite all of this, he managed to build an incredible career in finance until one day he realized the place he was in life wasn't where he belonged. He chose to leave the safety and security and all the trappings that come with wealth to venture out like the mushroom farmer did in my story, to connect with what matters most to him. His name is Robert Party. He's world-renowned as a life coach. Robert Party will share how you can find and build resilience, move positively through change, and to make things happen regardless of what happens. How you can counter what he calls the mental health pandemic caused by our world turning upside down. By the end of this show, you'll have a better appreciation of the importance of having purpose, perspective, and the tools that give you personal power. Robert Party, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I am honored beyond what you could think, <laughs> actually. I think your, your guests are amazing, what you're doing is amazing, so thank you.
1: So Robert, you've delivered keynotes and media interviews all over the world. Tell us the best introduction you've ever had that truly describes what you do.
0: It's an amazing introduction and it's uh, it's very artistic, let's say. When I gave a, a speech in Dubai uh, at a leadership conference, they asked me if I had any good luck charms or something like that, and I don't. But when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, I bought myself a kaleidoscope, and I carry it with me everywhere. It's it's here right now in Italy. They introduced me as the man who views life through the lens of a kaleidoscope. And I just thought, wow, that, that's really what It is at the end of the day.
1: So the man that views life through the end of a kaleidoscope, I have another task for you. I did a series called Word Matters, where I asked my guests, what word matters most to you and why? I've got a pretty good guess what you're going to choose, but what word would you choose?
0: It's a battle between the two because they're really connected. It's between joy and gratitude, but you can't have joy without gratitude. So gratitude is the foundation.
1: So talk to me about gratitude. It seems like such a simple word, but it's also quite elusive, isn't it?
0: It's incredibly elusive. And unfortunately, it's become such a key word in, in life that to a certain extent, it's actually even lost its meaning. Because gratitude, which I call the go-go juice of life, I love to play with words, and is not necessarily about appreciating an item. It's really more about valuing the emotion that the item invokes in you. Because when you lose something, you're losing that emotion, you're losing that part of you, that identity. It's not necessarily the item. So the reason gratitude is very elusive is people focus on the wrong things and there's also there's a few obstacles to actually being grateful in life, which are habitual.
1: Today you're a life coach, author, speaker, but researching your life wasn't always that great. You were born in the Bronx, but born in the hands of an abusive father, an alcoholic.
0: I remember the uncertainty of the alcoholism, where I didn't know if he was just going to be normal or if he was going to be violent or he was going to hug me and kiss my face (laughs) all over the place. When I was young, you know, there there were this spankings and the beatings. But as I got older and I understand now how unhappy he was with his life. But as I got older, the beatings got worse. I also somewhere developed this attitude of I would stand back up and I would laugh or I, I wouldn't show him that I was hurt. And they got progressively worse up until one day it led us to a really big conflict.
1: And what happened then?
0: You know, he was he was never violent with my mom ever. I was about 13 years old and he literally had me against the wall and he was banging me into the wall. And my mom was screaming out, Bob, because I'm named after my dad, Bob, you're going to kill him. Stop it. He turned to my mom with this rage in his face. That moment, I found all the strength that a thirteen-year-old could muster up, and I pushed him back. He laughed at me and he came at me, but I pushed again and I knocked him down. I actually grabbed a kitchen knife and I put it against his throat, and I said, "If you ever touch me again, I will kill you." And that was the last time he ever touched me. I realized it was the typical bully syndrome, at least with with my father. That the moment I was able to show that. No, this is not going to happen anymore. All of a sudden, he was intimidated by me. Interestingly enough, my mom, as had always happened when things like this happened, she would ask me to go apologize to my dad. And so the next day, she asked me to go apologize to him. He was in the basement and I had slept over a friend's house that night. I went down and he laughed and he said, It got really out of hand yesterday. And I said, I never want to speak to you again. But in front of mom, I'll do what's necessary, but I don't like you. I don't want to be like you. And I never wanted you in my life.
1: What did you learn from being in that kind of environment where you had to put a knife to your dad's throat?
0: Living in uncertainty, which is pretty much life in general. Okay, that's an extreme example, of course, living in that type of environment in a house. It was learning to reach out. It was learning to learn how to laugh um, when something horrible happened and and try to diffuse it. It was about resilience, of course. That's one of the reasons why I speak a lot about resilience. I mean, at 13 years old, I went and I found a job. I wanted to make sure that I was independent and taking care of myself. That taught me those life skills. I didn't have the traditional childhood because I became somewhat of an adult at a very young age. All of those came in extremely handy, especially during the journey with my wife.
1: Coming up, we talk about Robert's short but incredible journey with the love of his life and the lessons he learned through his tragedy.
0: Say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make a difference.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Today I'm chatting with Robert Party. He's a world renowned life coach and speaker. One thing that really you value that came from your dad was his mom, and your she grandmother, she, who you called She taught. She gave you an incredible lesson in life too, didn't she?
0: It is just incredible that she was my dad's mom, but yet she and I were basically tied to the hip. There were so many things she taught me. Once I remember my dad was horribly drunk. He was slurring his words. And she said, look at that. She said, that's weakness. He lets other things control him. Don't ever be like that. And the second thing that I remember her telling me was to live like a gypsy. She said, Robert, just do, see, be, travel. Don't settle. The world is big.
1: So you're age 13. You're wired to say, I'm going to make money. I'm going to find a way to to liberate myself. And you back it up. You get an undergraduate degree in economics, an MBA from Columbia University. You meet your wife, Desiree, there, the woman you would marry. Before we chat about Desiree, Tell me about that race down that path where you felt money would be your liberation.
0: When I started working, I realized that there's ways to save money. I mean, I, I was a kid, but I was putting away money. I paid for my, my college education. I bought a car. I bought my clothes. I mean, it was incredible how much I did back then. I also grew up in the Ronald Reagan, Gordon Gecko, 1980s boom. And, you know, money was on everybody's mind, let's say. So it just felt like the normal path. It was fueled by anger, which which is interesting.
1: Well, you went pretty far. Didn't you go over to the Middle East to uh, set up business?
0: That happened when I was with uh, Desiree. I, at that point in time, started questioning whether or not I wanted to stay in finance. But then a job in Abu Dhabi came up, and it provided such great benefits and the ability to travel. And I just said, okay, this, this makes sense right now. And my wife and I, we had discussed it because it would mean living separated for a while, but we both believed in experience. So we said, no, this is an experience that neither of us can pass up.
1: Desiree, you meet her in university. She's the love of your life. She decides to join in the Middle East. I understand you had a great strategy that was she would finish her PhD, then you would pursue some other passion. But she's going through a medical exam to get into the country and they find something horrible. Yeah. At age 31, right?
0: Exactly. Um, She had just turned 31. She had actually found a lump in her breast the year before. But I can't, we can't blame anyone. I can't blame anyone. It was the late nineties, a 29 or a 30 year old woman with a lump in her breast with a family history of cystic breasts was not going to be sent for a mammogram. When she was going through the medical screening, but we decided to make it a physical in Abu Dhabi, they told her that she needed to get it checked. And I have to say the doctor was amazing because he was very diligent with everything. He did a needle aspiration. I didn't understand what any of that meant at the time. There was no fluid and it became serious in that moment because my wife explained to me if there's no fluid, it's probably solid and there's a chance it's cancer and happened so quickly. Uh, we had just given up our apartment in New York because she took a year sabbatical from she was doing an MD, PhD. So she finished her PhD. She decided to take a year off before doing her, her MD it was around Thanksgiving, trying to get flights and, and all kinds of things, and it would have been impossible. We spoke to our doctor in New York, and he said, no, have, have the surgery in, in Dubai, have the lump removed. And when they removed the lump, they realized that it wasn't only cancer in the lump, but in the surrounding tissue. And they took 12 lymph nodes, 11 of them were positive.
1: And how long did she fight that disease?
0: In total, it was 11 years.
1: You talk a lot about that what your wife went through and the admiration that you had because as much as she was struggling with survival, literally survival, at the same time, she was passionate about getting
0: the most out of life. She never wanted to put judgment on anything, especially what she was doing. So she actually asked me to be her surrogate. Like she didn't know how many lymph nodes were were positive. She didn't know the size of the tumor because she didn't want to focus on it. She just wanted to know she was doing her best and she was aggressive. That said, we both learned very early on that there's two two choices in life, obligation and opportunity. Instead of feeling like we're obligated to go through this horrible cancer journey, what were we able to do? And what it taught us very early on was to let go of the unnecessary.
1: But you also talk about that in the early stages, maybe in a, because you're trying to deny it or whatever, you said you strapped on armor to protect yourself and you realized that that had the opposite impact. That armor wasn't protecting you if anything was weighing you down.
0: Yeah, for sure. I was the one that knew everything, right? I, I was the one that they told she has 24 to 30 months maximum to live. I was told that she'll never go into remission. I had to shore myself up and look strong, because if she saw anything on my face or any type of worry, then she realized it was worse than I was saying it was. But also, it's this idea of, you know, if we protect ourselves from all those negative emotions, and we just plow through, everything is going to be okay. It wasn't until I let go of the armor. And what what I mean by letting go of the armor is actually surrendering to the fact that I wasn't God, I wasn't a research scientist, I wasn't an oncologist, there was no way I was going to be able to save her. And if I was fighting against by wearing the armor, that stopped me from fighting for the life we had.
1: So I learned a lot researching you. We've had some very similar parallels. I lost my mom to breast cancer at 51. I always say she died of old age because she just had to deal with my dad her entire life. But I also felt it was a short life. When you describe your wife's life, who died much younger, you said, but she had a full
0: life. How, how do you measure life? If we're saying it's the number of years, okay, that's a measurement. If we're saying it's joy, if we're saying it's achievement, that's another measurement. So my wife lived an accelerated life, but she lived a full joyful, regardless of, I mean, we were traveling to India the day she got chemotherapy. I mean, it was, it was just incredible. She lived an accelerated, full, joyful life. And do I miss her? Of, of course I do, uh, every single moment. But who am I to say 41 is early or, or late? I just know she lived an amazing life and had great impact. And that's how I like to look at it. So she
1: passes away. You're left not only without armor, you're left without the love of your life. And you talk about that period of being lost, almost taking drastic consequences, which I read into even contemplating suicide. Yeah. And then you find you you renew your will to live.
0: I didn't follow the normal stages of grief. I didn't didn't grieve normally. I think also because of the way that I was the holder of all the news and I, I sort of grieved the whole process because I knew how the cancer was spreading. But that moment, my, my darkest moment after she passed away was, I gave a memorial for her, it just happened to be on our 20th wedding anniversary. After the memorial, the room was empty. I was packing up my computer and I said, there's nothing left for me to do. And it wasn't because I was sad. It was because I was purposeless, because Desiree had become my purpose. I'll tell you what actually did save me is I get to my apartment building that that evening and there are ambulances and fire trucks and cop cars because a young girl, 16 years old, threw herself out the window. And I said, this is not what's supposed to happen. I can't do that. And I went back to Dubai because the instinct was I have a lot of debt. I can't afford the apartment. I'll go back to Dubai. I'll go back to my job. I'll make a lot of money. And I'll be safe, even though I knew money wasn't safety and I knew money couldn't save her, but it was instinct. And when I was in Dubai, I started feeling a need to share everything that was inside of me. Not because I wanted somebody to pat me on the back, but because I started thinking, wow, I just went through this journey and there are things I learned that maybe could help people. And that was the transition.
1: But that transition involved you moving to Italy with no job, without command of their language. And the first place you go is Rome, the city where you spent your wife's last birthday. I have to be honest and ask you, were you running at that time or pursuing life?
0: That's a really good question. Um, And I'll be perfectly honest. I was pursuing a new life. And the idea to reinvent myself as an Italian, speaking a different language in a way, meant that I wasn't going to be the widower and have all this pain. Back in the back of my mind, there was this lurking belief that I didn't really really know. But I was also pursuing life because I looked at everything she achieved, and I said to myself, you know what? I want to test my mettle. Let me see what I could do. I show up in Rome, and I'm like, okay, what's next? Let's see.
1: My wife often talks about her ex-husband and her three ex-dogs as her angels that help guide her. Do you think your wife in any way was guiding you away from the trappings of wealth and bringing you back to Italy and to pursue this? Or was this all yourself?
0: 100%. And I'm going to say something that's going to be really corny. Um, I also am a guy that loves chick flicks. So my wife loved the book Eat, Pray, Love. Now, her last birthday, her 40th birthday, was spent in Rome and India. So I go see the movie because I never read the book, but I knew she loved it. And I was like, okay, I was in Dubai. I went to see the movie. Of course, I cried the whole two scenes because it's Rome and India. I said, why am I giving all that up? I really believe she sent me to that movie. I went alone, you know, in the middle of the, the evening. Why? I don't know. That night, actually, I'll be perfectly honest, I had a ticket for Bangkok to go hang out with some friends. I changed my ticket to go to Rome. I called my best friend in New York and I said, you're not going to believe it. I'm, I'm heading to, to Rome. And he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it on your own. He said, I'll fly out and I'll meet you there. And I said, all right, let me have one day to myself because if I break down crying, I'd rather do it myself. And when I landed, I felt grounded.
1: You publish your first book, Chasing Life. It's a, it's a true story of love, joy, and achievement. In many ways, it's a love story and a way of saying thanks to your wife, isn't
0: it? It's everything. After my wife passed away, there was a New York Times article written about her, and it was on the front page of the New York Times Easter Sunday, 2010. Now, the only way it's going to get on the front page of any newspaper but the New York Times is if it's a little controversial. The interview started while she was alive, but she passed away, and the interview wasn't finished, and the New York Times did say to me that they wanted to go in a different direction, and I decided... Okay, look, my wife wanted people to talk more than anything else. She wanted people to discuss all of these things. So the book as well, while it's our journey, it does also explain her philosophy of the importance of patient choice, living around the disease instead of living the disease. So it's a thank you. And it's a explanation of living well.
1: So you leave Rome, you move to a small town in Italy. How did you find clients in a village that could authentically claim a simpler life that were also looking for a life coach? was it just, just a place to base yourself, knowing that your clients would come from all over the world?
0: They showed me this one house, which just has this amazing view. And so I said, yes, because it made me feel special and it was crumbling. So it costs nothing. <laughs> but the idea of clients, I knew I could never coach an Italian. Because the whole thing about life coaching is entering into empathy with somebody. And while I'm fluent in Italian, I'm not expressive in Italian. Therefore, my clients I knew would always be in the United States or English-speaking countries, uh, whether it's Dubai, because I spent a lot of time in Dubai with the UAE in general. This allowed me the base to actually build that slowly, because I'm, I was very specific at the beginning of who I wanted to work with. Blossom from there. So while
1: you're there, you decide to invest in a tour operator with the idea being, I want to bring people over to experience what I have. Well, let's go back to that word experience because you talked about it earlier. Experience what I have and how I live. And all of this is going well, then COVID hits. Everybody's life turned upside down when COVID hit. What happened to yours?
0: We tend to think we learn by studying. But we really learn through experience. Our brain does not have files like a computer. Our brain creates stories. The fabric between the story are the experiences that all those stories have. So that's why the word experience is so important to me. I had this idea of bringing people here into this small town to connect with something a lot more authentic as a way to be a coaching life reevaluation type of project so i invest in this tour company because i would need licenses and everything else and then i go back to the united states february 2020 to actually market the product COVID hits hits in italy first of all things as well so um all of a sudden we start talking about the tour company and we had invested a lot of money in buying tickets from the coliseum and the coliseum refused to refund money to any tour operator But of course, our clients wanted the money back. It became a situation where there was illiquidity and the company had to declare bankruptcy. I looked at everything and I asked myself, why am I really doing the retreats? And what I realized is I was doing the retreats because my American brain was telling me to build bigger. That's what we do. Instead of saying what I have is already so valuable, what COVID allowed me to do was reevaluate where I wanted to dedicate my time. One thing I'd love everyone who's listening right now if we learned anything through COVID, we learned the value of not only connection, but of time. Imagine the people that are going back to their office now and spending 45 minutes commuting each way. That's lost time in a way, right? They were able to work from home, they didn't have to do that commuting. When we think of spending, We think about spending money, but we actually spend time and it's non-renewable. We can never gain more time. What it allowed me to do was say, "Okay, where do I want to spend my time? And this went back to being an economist. Opportunity costs. Every yes is a no. Every no is a yes. And I was able then to focus on exactly what I wanted to do, the market I really wanted to address and then started working on opening that up.
1: Speaking of time, I want to take advantage of your time and have you talk about gratitude. What are the physical and mental benefits that come with people that are truly grateful?
0: It lowers your blood pressure. It improves your sleep by 30 minutes a night. It helps you just remain overall more balanced. It makes you more optimistic. It helps with decision-making. It allows you to think clearer. And so therefore, you're, you're making better decisions. Um, those are just a, a few. I mean, we could go on and on to relationships, um, connection, it has been proven to improve your sex life as well. So...
1: You also talk about there's tools to improve your ability to be grateful, to have gratitude.
0: And this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier that gratitude has become something we just say, oh yeah, I'm grateful for this, I'm grateful for that. But gratitude in a way has to be connected to the idea of loss. I had written an article about in this town, there's an, an old home, They kept it as is. There was a woman, her name was Maralisa. She lived as she did when she was born until she died in the 70s. One sink, no heat. She slept with donkeys in her bedroom for heat. Basic. Coffin under the bed. So if she died, the coffin was already there. And one of the things I think is extremely, it's a great practice is what's called voluntary discomfort. It actually does come from stoicism. Wash the dishes for a week by hand with only cold water and realize how grateful you are if you have a dishwasher. Take the stairs up four or five flights instead of taking the elevator or an escalator. And you'll realize how lucky we are for the modern things that we have in our life. Even a more powerful tool is to be a mentor. So whatever you have learned in your life, if there's someone you can help learn, all of a sudden you are so thankful for what you're able to give them. What gratitude tells you more than anything else, is that you are enough and you have enough. And once you're able to mentor someone, even if, if, if you're helping somebody you know, learn about finance, if you're in finance, or if you're somebody that knows how to sew and you teach somebody how to sew, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You will be extremely grateful.
1: Up next with COVID and our economy injecting so much uncertainty, Robert Party and I chat about how you and your kids can remain resilient and thrive moving forward
0: all of us have special ones who have loved us into being would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people
1: who have helped you become who you are
0: whomever you've been thinking about how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made
1: chatter that matters with tony chapman continues I'm talking to world-renowned speaker and life coach Robert Party. RBC has this program called Future Launch. They're spending 500 million dollars over 10 years to help Canadian youth find and pursue their path in life. What advice would you bring RBC and the youth that they're helping on how to build resilience? Because I think resilience is going to be one of the most important attributes as we come out of COVID and face a world of intense competition and all the curveballs that's coming at us.
0: We're already all resilient. We've all had our backup against the wall, and we say, I can't take one more thing, but yet we do. The important thing to understand about resilience is we need to learn how to access it. It should be something on demand, not a last resort. Where resilience really comes from, in my opinion, is the intersection of three important concepts. Perspective, personal power, and purpose. And it's that purpose which is key. And unfortunately, it has become such a big word that people shy away from it. But purpose does not mean you have to save the world. Purpose could mean helping someone across the street because it's in line with your values. If you want to help youth become more resilient, but really what you're doing is helping them access the resilience they already have, is to help them understand what their values are. Because it's their values which drive their purpose. Because purpose is, is passion in alignment with values. And youth, a lot of times, know what they're passionate about. They might not know their values yet, even though they're living them.
1: You also talk a lot about social media, this need to keep up to the Joneses on steroid, confirmation bias, all the things that it's creating. How can youth find those values, that intersection with purpose and passion and pursuit, while at the same time chasing all these false social media stereotypes?
0: One of the things we have to learn is... That is not the real world. Ask them who they admire, not who they're comparing themselves to in social media. Because comparison is corrosive. Admiration is actually constructive. Ask the youth, who do you admire? Ask them why they admire that person. Because what they admire in that person are values that resonate with them.
1: We're using words throughout this podcast. You use the word impermanence. Is that even a word? Yes, it is. Yes, (laughs) it is. Did you invent that word, true confession?
0: I, I think that for a second, is it? You know, I did teach English for a while when I first moved to Italy. I'll give you a visual of impermanence. The ancient Japanese had a calendar with 72 seasons. Now, that's basically a season every five or six days. Why? Because everything is changing. Nothing is permanent. If impermanence didn't exist we couldn't be able to change we wouldn't be able to change as human beings to evolve because impermanence teaches you to look at life with curiosity because what's happening now will never happen again not the same way ever that's part of what helped me understand letting my wife go as well impermanence is holding on to life lightly because when you're holding on tightly you've got a fist there's no way to grab something new
1: Did you ever make peace with your dad?
0: No. My dad at one point in time had written me a letter and he had said that he'd like to build a relationship, rebuild it. And I said, okay, write me a few more times. I want to see if you've changed because way too many times you promised me you had changed and he never wrote me back.
1: And speaking of your wife, Desiree, if she was looking down from the heavens, what would she say now about how you're chasing life?
0: I think she'd be thrilled to death. First of all, I think she's with Grandma Fella. So I think they're already, right. the both of them are chatting, right? They're talking about me being a gypsy. But I'll share something which I really have never shared with anyone. My wife, we never really spoke about death, but she asked me a favor. And she said, and she knew she was dying by this point because she said, when, when I die, I want you to put everything of mine in the coffin. My diploma is books. Every, I don't want you to be burdened with that will be a new season for you. It will be a next adventure. Go live it. I think I'm doing that.
1: <laughs> Robert party, there's I always end with three things that I've learned today that I've learned so much from you. It was almost a hidden sentence within this podcast, but you talk about experiences. That's what matters most. It's it's the stories and the experiences and how they knit together. Second thing is that to have gratitude to be grateful, you have to base it on a loss. And I love the simple analogy of wash dishes for a week in cold water, and you'll have gratitude that you're blessed with a dishwasher and hot water. The most important one, especially as we were talking about the future launch program, the RBC, is it's about who you admire versus who you compare yourself to. I so appreciate you joining me on this. Uh, on this podcast. And if people want to get hold of you, Robert, what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, The best way would be just to go to my personal website, which is robertparty.com. Click on the link to send me an email.
1: In every episode, I choose a word, sometimes two, that captures the essence of the podcast. And I use it to frame the title. Well, this episode is called Gratitude Matters. And when you listen to Robert Party's story, of his horrible relationship he had with his father, and then losing the love of his life after her 11-year battle with breast cancer, you wonder, why is he grateful? He has every right to be angry with the cards he's been dealt, but instead he took those experiences to become a life coach, to help others find their path towards possibilities and positivity. And I want to take a moment to tell you I have so much to be grateful for. I'm the father of two wonderful daughters. My oldest, Alexander is married. She works for Apple in San Francisco. She brings a smile, suggestion, and even solution to any conversation. She's positive and optimistic, married to a wonderful man, and they're building an incredible life that extends beyond their careers to their family, their friends, and their interests. And my youngest daughter, Michaela, she's called an old soul by her grandmother Nina the day she was born, and Nina was right. Michaela is the international engagement and wellness lead at DLA Piper. She's also an artist, musician, deep thinker, and she wants to change how we think and act upon issues like diversity and inclusion and mental health in the workplace and in our lives. I'm also grateful for their mother, Anne, for everything she does to provide them with mothers do best, love and guidance, empathy and encouragement. I'm grateful to my wife, Marion. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary together and we walk in step holding hands and sharing dreams on just about anything. I'm grateful to my three sisters, my parents who I know look down on me every day from heaven, and for all of my friends. And I'm grateful for all of you for listening to the radio show or downloading Chatter That Matters. It's my true labor of love and life. And a big thanks to Chris Kant, Mike Ben Dixon, and Samantha Broughton for everything they do to make Chatter That Matters the show it is. I'm also grateful to RBC for letting me share these stories of ordinary people who do extraordinary things and their life lessons that inspire us to do more, and be more. And my gratitude extends beyond the dollars they invest in the show. My gratitude's to people like Sheila and Caroline and Alan and Matt, Valerie, Diana, Corey, Vanessa, Ryan, Michelle, so many people who invest time they don't have into making chatter that matters, matter. And why I'm on RBC, we should all be grateful for what RBC's doing beyond banking to help youth find their path in life, help women entrepreneurs with their dreams, artists and musicians, that BIPOC and Indigenous communities pursue their dreams, and all of us deal with climate change. And finally, I want to tell you how grateful I am for being Canadian. No country's perfect, but the countries where people have the freedom and intent to reconcile with their past, repair their present, can build a better future. I'm betting on Canada, and I hope you are too. It's Tony Chapman. Thank you for listening, and let's chat soon.
0: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC.
1: Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk
0: Network.